about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. I love the Lord, for He heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because He turned His ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I said, I am greatly afflicted, and in my dismay I said, all men are liars. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Hello, my name's Rachel, and I'm reading from 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 4, verse 7, through to chapter 5, verse 10. And that's on page 1144, if you're using the Pew Bibles. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Good evening. My name's Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for the great privilege we have of coming to your word this evening. We ask that you would speak to us uh, through your word and by your spirit, uh, that our lives would continue to be transformed and changed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on May 12th this year, Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the Chief Operating Officer of Facebook, uh, talked to to a group of graduating students at Virginia Tech. I don't know whether you remember, Virginia Tech is the place where there was a massacre about 10 years ago, um, and quite a number of students were killed. And as she spoke to them, she said to them, we build resilience into ourselves. That's the kind of topic that she spoke of. And of course, with, uh, in terms of resilience, she's talking about the, the ability to get up again after something's happened to you, uh, after life has knocked you about a bit. She went on to talk about resilience because in her own experience, she'd just lost her husband uh, two years earlier, quite suddenly, and she was wanting to say to these students, this is the way you go about resilience within your own life. And she came up with three things. First of all, we build resilience into ourselves. Uh, Her contention here is that we're not born with resilience, we actually need to build it. It's a bit like a muscle. You go to the gym and you you lift weights and you become stronger, and so resilience is much the same thing, that you you build it for yourself. Uh, We build resilience into the people we love. Uh, That was another suggestion she made. And finally, we build resilience together as a community, that kind of collective resilience as a community. And of course, as you spoke, that's a very inspiring thing to hear. And you can imagine the graduates sitting there and saying, yes, okay, this is exactly what I need as I go out into this world, given the history of this place, given the calamities that have taken place uh, at Virginia Tech, I understand I will need these things as I leave. And I kind of like that narrative. There's something about it that seems kind of, wow, this is good, let's let's get on with it. That's great. And I understand, really, actually the need for resilience too in life. Uh, My own experience has taught me that. Uh, By the time I was 13, I'd lived with four different families, been in six different schooling environments, and been in two different countries. And so I was quite used to the idea of you having to be resilient. I mean, I remember one particular incident where in year six... I got some tinnitus or something with my ears and I ended up in hospital in Kuala Lumpur by myself with no one that I knew uh, in an adult ward. 
It's kind of like, whoa, I have to work out what to do here, how to cope and how to get, pick myself up again, perhaps. And yet there's something about that, that narrative of resilience and having to pick yourself up and building resilience into the people we love and communities of resilience that's perhaps not quite right. I'm not suggesting that we don't need resilience, and I know some of you will work with people in helping them gain resilience, but I wonder if there's some other way of looking at this, another way of thinking about these things, and I think Paul tonight helps us think of these things differently. And I invite you to come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 and to consider this notion of resilience in the world of calamity, um, to understand what's taking place. Paul understands that he needs resilience. Uh, you might notice there in uh, verses 8 and 9, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are persecuted but not abandoned. We are struck down but not destroyed. Uh, Paul is clearly aware of circumstances and calamities in life which are very difficult. Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. And we're not talking about minor things here. We're talking about him being stoned and thrown into jail, losing friends and family and colleagues and churches standing against him. Uh, this man knows what it is to face calamity, but somehow he's not crushed, he's not in despair, he's not abandoned, he's not destroyed. Right there is resilience. How does he remain so resilient in those circumstances? Well, tonight as we come to this passage, I want to think about three things. We are cracked pots, we are raised above, and we need to groan more. Cracked pots, raised above, need to groan more. Come with me to chapter 2, verse, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Now we have this treasure in clay jars. Now the clay jars Paul is referring to is himself, us, our bodies. Uh, he makes that clear in verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death. So then death is at work within us. Uh, the sense we have here is that clay jars are quite fragile. They can be broken. They're, they're prone to calamity. They can be chipped. They can crack. We're clay jars, he's reminding us. I think Leonard Cohen put it beautifully when he said, there is a crack in everything. He's reminding us there that actually we're fragile human beings. There's a fragility about who we are. Now, of course, that's different to the narrative we often hear. We often hear the narrative that says, hey, if you have this, you won't be fragile anymore. If you have the next job, you'll be okay. If you have the next house, you'll be okay. If you get the right degree, you will be okay. If you have the right relationship, you'll be fine. If you have the right, what would you fill it in with? Everything will be okay. Paul here is reminding us that is not the case. We are clay jars. But you notice that Paul also says there's treasure in these uh, clay jars. What, what does he actually mean here? Well, if you look back at a verse be, um, before uh, verse 7, what you discover is 
these words, let the light shine out of darkness. And this light has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light that is contained in these clay jars is actually the light of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us, and it's God's light shining in the darkness. Now, what's so interesting about this image is I think it's evocative of other things. Now, this is my intuition here. Some of you may not agree with this, but I think there's actually another scene behind this that kind of Paul has in the background. And it's from Judges chapter 7. Uh, It's the story of Gideon. Uh, You may remember the story of Gideon where Gideon is trying to raise an army against the Midianites. And he managed to scrape together 32,000 men for this battle. And that didn't sound like enough. And God said to him, well, actually, that's too many. Why don't you send anyone home who's afraid? Yep, me, I'm going home. 22,000 went home. (laughs) They said, oh, we're out of here. We're off to our families. Let's get go. Then God says to Gideon, actually, that's too many. And so they have a drinking competition, not the kind you see in the pub, but a drinking competition by some water. And the way they go about drinking determines as to whether they'll go into battle and the lappers win. There are 300 lappers who lap the water and they become the 300 men who are going against this great force of the Midianites. It looks absolutely impossible. But the really strange thing is that they're given horns, clay jars with lights in them and they're placed all around the Midianites. At the particular signal, the horns are sounded, the clay jars, the clay pots are cracked, and the light shines forth. And the Midianites actually finish each other off. They're so terrified by what they hear. And we hear in Judges the reason for that is that God would show forth his strength in weakness that people would praise God, not Gideon, for the victory. Would praise God, not the people of Israel, for the victory. And so it's so interesting to see in verse 7 what Paul goes on to say. We now have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Or a little bit later on in verse 10, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may be displayed in our mortal flesh. It's to point to Jesus. It's to point to the fact that God works in weakness in the fragility of our clay pots, in the fragility of our broken pots. And it's like, actually, as our pots are broken and fragile, his light is able to shine through. His light is able to shine out to others because the light comes from him and not 
from us. So the first step to recognise in thinking about resilience is this. Resilience is not about building a muscle. Resilience is not about something that we can drag up ourselves. Resilience is about letting the extraordinary power of the gospel and the death and resurrection of Jesus shine into our lives and through us. It's about God at work within us. It's about depending on God and his power to work within us. It's about being a cracked pot and saying, actually, I can't do this. I am weak. I need your strength. I cannot do this in my power. I need you to work something in my life. In fact, I don't even know how to do that. I just want you to do it. Because I know in my weakness I will find your strength. And that's not the only thing that Paul has to say about resilience, but I think that's a really good place to start. To throw ourselves at Jesus' feet, to ask that the gospel might continue to enter into our lives, that the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ may empower us to face those calamities of life. Not because we're brilliant, but because he is. Not because we shine, because he shines through the cracks and the vessels that we are. Now, as I said, that's not the only thing that Paul has to say about resilience here. He goes on and he he asks us to lift our eyes, to be raised above. Paul had many, many reasons to give up. Um, but he hasn't. And it's not only that he's, uh, he's a survivor, he actually raise, is raised above the situation. Um, it's not like he's faced calamity and somehow survived and he's kind of limping along. It's actually that he does more than that. He continues on. He grows stronger in the knowledge of Jesus and what Jesus has done for him. And the clear evidence of this is when he speaks. You see there in verse 13, And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we speak. You see, the thing that's got Paul into trouble most is his speaking. He's been speaking all over the place. He hasn't been doing a tourist circuit of uh, Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and all those places like I've done. He was there speaking. And that speaking got him threatened, stoned. They basically left him for dead, imprisoned. He faced hostile crowds all the time. In fact, the Corinthians he's speaking to have said to him, you shouldn't be speaking. And he's still speaking. He's risen above the situation. He's actually entered into it and continued. Now, I want to suggest to you that Paul actually is really challenging at this point because there's a great temptation for me, and I don't know about for you, to stop speaking about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep quiet, particularly in the midst of persecution and hardship and difficulty. It's really easy to go quiet. 
But Paul has not gone quiet. He's risen to the occasion. And this is the reason. Well, it's worth noticing, uh, he's quoting a psalm here. You see down at the bottom of the page, you see that it's from Psalm 116. In Psalm 116, we read these words. Uh, he's not unaware of the difficulties, by the way. It's very clear from this psalm. He knows what's going on. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torments of Sheol overcame me. I encountered trouble and sorrow. He knows he's facing calamity. He, he understands that. But in verse 10, he says this. I believed even when I said I am severely oppressed. I believed. We then hear what he believed. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is compassionate. The Lord guards the inexperienced. I was helpless and he saved me. Rest to, return to your rest, my soul, and the Lord has been good to you. For the Lord has rescued me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Paul has a firm belief in a kind and compassionate and gracious God, a God who will walk with him as he stumbles, who's rescued him from death. And that's worked itself out in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you can see his confidence here in verse 14. For we know that the one who was raised, the Lord Jesus, will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Paul is fully confident of his belief because he's fully confident that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he will be joining Jesus. And you see that all through this passage, actually, this idea that something else is coming. Uh, in chapter 5, we see things like the earthly tent and the building with God of being unclothed and clothed, of being at home in the body and being away from the Lord. All kinds of descriptions he uses to describe the fact that there, there is a future, there is a hope. There is a time when he will be raised with Christ. What he's doing here is lifting our eyes from where we are to a new horizon. Some of you will remember the, uh, the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, who was called Chuck. And he had, uh, was it a volleyball? Wilson. Wilson the volleyball, okay? And they spent a lot of time together talking. Well, no, actually, he was talking to Wilson, but you, you get the drift. Um, here you go, drift. Uh, <laughs> finally makes it to a raft off this island, okay? And he's on this raft... And as the movie unfolds, he's, he's lying on the raft and it's clear he's near his end. Wilson, the volleyball, has drifted off. <laughs> um, and he's under great calamity. There, there really is nothing left. He's, he's lying on his back and he's dying. There is absolutely no hope. And then for whatever reason, a whale comes by and starts spurting water onto him. That kind of wakes him up. But as he looks up, he sees in the horizon a ship, a great big container ship. And his horizon is immediately changed. 
because he knows he's going to be rescued. Something's going to happen here. Now imagine you're on that raft. Life has got pretty rough. Things have got pretty difficult. Friends have deserted you. You're not in a good spot. And Paul says to you, lift your eyes. Look to the horizon. The rescue is coming. The ship is on its way. It's coming for you. You will be safe. You will be rescued. And wouldn't that just change your whole outlook on things? Well, that's what Paul is saying here. I'm not only empowered by the Spirit, empowered by the gospel and the light of the gospel and what it's doing to me. I've list, it's helped me lift my eyes and see what is to come. To see the resurrection, to see what Jesus has done before me. And therefore, in verse 16, he can say words like this. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed every day. See what's happening? God is at work. He's being renewed. He's being changed. For our momentary light affliction is producing in us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory so that we do not focus on what is seen but on what is unseen, for what is te- on what is temporary but on what is unseen and eternal. He's looking up. He's seeing things from an eternal perspective. He's seeing that God has done something about his future. There is hope. Even though the outer person's being destroyed, there is hope. And I know something about the outer person being destroyed. At the moment, you're probably not feeling that. But, you know, as time goes by, you kind of get to recognize the outer person gets destroyed. And really, the only hope is in the horizon. But isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful to realize that that is what before is before us? Isn't that amazing to have that horizon set before us in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection? Now there's a challenge here. Because once we realize we're clay pots and God's doing stuff within us and shining his light and there are cracks and all that kind of thing, and we look forward and we see this beautiful horizon where everything will be restored and everything will be perfect and we know that we're going to be rescued, we suddenly become aware of the gap between those two things, of where we are and what will be. So it's a beautiful hope and a wonderful hope and we're empowered by it, but we also become aware that there's, there's kind of a gap going on here. And that brings us to our third point we should groan more. Because the gospel is our present power and our future hope, resilience, yes, grows in us. But we need to groan more. See chapter 5? For we know that if our earthly tent, we live in it, is destroyed, we have a building from God and an eternal dwelling in the heavens not made with hands. So there's there's the comparison again, earthly tent, Um, heavenly building, all those kinds of things. Verse 2, Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling, since when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. There's the first groaning. Verse 4, 
Indeed, we groan while we're in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed so that mortality may be swallowed up by this life. Paul keeps pointing out the differences and the groaning that comes with this. Romans 8 makes a similar point. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together with labour pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. There is a certain amount of groaning that goes on when you know where you are and know what the future is. It's realistic, it's tough, it's difficult. And I think Paul is here inviting us to groan together. We need to groan with each other. I groan when I see and look at my own life and I think, oh, wow, God wanted me to be this and I was that. Like, that's so disappointing. How come I didn't live like that? How come I didn't say that? How, how come I didn't live out the grace that he's called? What, what's going on? And I groan. I groan when I see the effects of people being allured away from the gospel. When I see people making decisions that takes them further and further away. And my heart just sinks and I think, oh, I really wish you would know the love of God. It saddens me to watch that happen. It's, it, it's groaning. Recently, that's become very real for me, the whole idea of groaning. Now, I'm going to refer to something in a moment. We're going to talk about it, and then we're going to move on to something else. Um, I'm going to share it with you, not as a way of bringing attention to myself, but as a way of speaking about these things, because actually I haven't heard a lot of people speak about these things, and I think it's important that we should. What I'm talking about is the fact that I became very aware of this groaning in my parents' death. Earlier this year, some of you will be familiar, my mum died and then my dad not long afterwards. Uh, This is a picture of us uh, when I was a young teenager. Like the fact that we've all got batik shirts on, that kind of was the thing to do. That, that is our house in remote Sarawak, Malaysia. You can see the cracks in the wall. Those are real cracks. That's sunlight outside. Uh, we, we had a house built of uh, hewn planks out of logs. Um, of course, we were Australians, so we have all those pictures of all those poisonous animals up as well, just to let everybody know that's what Australia's like. And, of course, they're welcome. Um, that's us sitting together, and that's my mum and dad and my brother and us sitting around um, in our, what was a lounge room, I think that's a lino floor or a mat on the floor there, that kind of thing. Now, I think my dad was a strong, kind and wise man, a beautiful man, a wonderful Christian man. And yet, I got to sit by him as he died. In fact, I got to sit by both my parents. Uh, remarkably, there was no one else around and I was just there by myself. Uh, praying with them. And so that's that's not a small thing to do. Um, And I groaned. I remember remember when we took my dad in, um, we'd kind of talked to a doctor and the doctor said, oh, look, I think he'll be fine. I think he'll be okay. Why don't you just take him into the hospital, give him a check over, see how things are going. And we got there 
and uh, they invited us into one of those rooms and I immediately went, oh, yep, this is it. And so a poor doctor had to come in and say to us, look, you know, your dad's not going to survive. When I found my dad, he was parked in a bed somewhere, I just remember sobbing. I just, oh. I could see death creeping upon him. I could see the fragility. I could see the fact that he was a clay vessel. It was really, really evident. It was right in front of me. It was happening. So how does this work in the midst of all that? That's what I had to ask. That's what I'm continuing to ask. How does this work? Well, one of the things, the gifts that my dad had given me was the fact that he taught me this 23rd Psalm. Uh, he taught me the 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer. Um, and kind of we used to recite it together. And so as we sat there and as I sobbed and as I groaned because of the distance between what was happening and all the things that are going on, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Those words are important. Because I couldn't walk my dad through death. But I knew someone who could. And I had to face it. And I knew someone who would comfort me. Whose rod and staff would comfort me. Woo! Okay, so you can see what's happening there is the work of God is taking place in my life, not because I'm super good at this. Please don't believe that. I've got a lot to learn. But it's only by his power and by his spirit as the light of the gospel shines into my life that I could even move that direction with all the groaning that was taking place. But I knew there was hope. I could look up and see the horizon. I knew this wasn't the end. I know it's a season and it might be a while. I hope it's a while in some ways. It means that I'll we'll live a long time. But you know what I mean. It's going to be a while, but it's, it's only for a season. It's a momentary thing. Now, that's a big thing. It doesn't only have to be about things like that. You can groan and find yourself in places in your normal interactions with people around you, in friendships, in relationships that go wrong, when things could be so much better, where you do things wrong, where other people do things wrong to you, where you don't get that promotion, where you fail that exam, where you don't have somewhere to live and you've got to find somewhere. And there's, there's all kinds of places that we groan, where we recognise there's a distance between our fragility and the what should be, that we're clay pots and yet there's a future. And it's those moments that I think we're called to apply the gospel to our hearts, to entrust ourselves to the God who deeply loves us and cares for us and shines his light into us and shows us himself in the person of Jesus. And it's that moment where we, we have no strength 
that we need to say to God, can you lift my eyes? I can't even see the horizon. I know it's out there somewhere and I know there's hope, but please help me. It's at those moments that we grow resilient. Not because of what we do, but because of what God is doing in us. So I invite you to a very different kind of narrative than building your own muscles and doing your own thing. I invite you to a narrative that invites you to sit at Jesus' feet, let him work in your life and lift your horizons. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.